Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 31, The New Way. In the last episode, we began talking about the strategy of attrition, and how the belligerents opted to conduct campaigns of exhaustion heading into 1916. Under the guidance of the French commander-in-chief, Joseph Joff, the attrition was to play out over a series of coordinated and concentrated offensives, aimed to exhaust Germany and Austria-Hungary of their manpower and war material. An Anglo-French attack on the Western Front, followed by simultaneous Italian and Russian campaigns, would force the Central Powers to commit maximum resources on all three fronts. By sustaining pressure in their respective theatres, no breathing room would be given, and it would only be a matter of time before the German and Austrian war machines ground to a halt. However, we already know that no plan survives first contact with the enemy, because on Christmas Eve, Falkenhayn received permission from the Kaiser to conduct Germany's own campaign of attrition. In 1915, Falkenhayn had played the diplomacy card. He appeased the Austro-Hungarians by attacking the Russians in Glacia, and silenced his main critics, Paul von Hindenburg and Erich von Ludendorff, by agreeing to eastern operations for that year. But now, with the Kaiser's backing, Falkenhayn turned his attention west and began planning for the campaign which would bleed the armies of France into exhaustion. As I hinted at last time, Falkenhayn was not very popular among the conservative senior-level commanders. When he took over from Moltke in September 1914, he brought a change of philosophy which was quite the departure from accepted doctrine. Traditionally, military thinkers in Germany had upheld that their best chance in a continental war was through the decisive victory model, that is, the strategy of annihilation we talked about last day. This near-unwavering belief had its roots in history, against the Austrians in 1866 and French in 1870, but this obsession was born from necessity rather than historic preference. For Germany to survive, she would need to win quick successive battles to avoid being entangled in a prolonged war, the fear being that the longer the war went on, the longer Germany's enemies would have to muster, the proverbial ring of steel. This was why the Schlieffen Plan was so endeared prior to the war. It was the perfect remedy to Germany's strategic issues, meticulous planning, detailed logistics, and most importantly, a clear objective, which would ensure Germany's deliverance. However, Falkenhayn inherited a position which was not to his liking and not of his design. The counterattack along the Marne defeated the Schlieffen Plan, and the Russian invasion into East Prussia had forced Germany into a two-front war ahead of schedule. When the Kaiser appointed him to take over, it turned out to be a fulcrum. As we saw last week, Falkenhayn abandoned the notion that Germany could still strike a decisive blow thus marking a break in ideology which dated back to the wars of unification. Now that the Schlieffen plan had shot its bolts, Falkenhayn believed Germany could only hope to use her remaining strength to wear down her opponents, and use diplomacy to reach a negotiated peace. In 1915, we saw how he attempted this against the Russians after the offensive at Kurlitzi Tarnov, but this change in philosophy, from annihilation to attrition, did not sit well with the older, quote-unquote, military men. The disciples of Schlieffen, and Falkenhayn's main critics, Hindenburg, Ludendorff, Moltke, and the Chancellor, Bethlehem Holwig, believed the decisive victory was still attainable. Anything less would be an admission of defeat. The root of the problem was they saw Falkenhayn as a politician soldier, seeking diplomatic and not military solutions. Whispers began to circulate that he was not dedicated to winning the war. Attrition, Hindenburg and Ludendorff argued, was a half-measure, a move born out of desperation and not one which should be undertook. After all, 1915 had belonged to the Central Powers, which had shown that Germany was far from defeated. Although Falkenhayn faced critics at every turn, he had all the support he needed in the form of Kaiser Wilhelm. As you'll recall back in episode 22, the infighting between Falkenhayn and Ludendorff had become quite serious, with threats of resignations and sackings being tossed around. 
but this had had the reverse effect to what Falkenhayn's critics intended. Kaiser Wilhelm had handpicked Falkenhayn, and thus any criticisms of his new chief were seen as a challenge to his imperial authority. Wilhelm had taken this personally, and was known to take a strip off his eastern generals for their insubordination, which both quelled the infighting but also fueled the easterners' hatred for their new boss. As Ludendorff quipped, I can hate, and that man Falkenhayn I hate very much. So what was Falkenhayn's thought process heading into 1916? We started talking about it last time, but we're going to get more into it today. For starters, Falkenhayn knew Germany was in a bind. The combined resources of the Allied coalition were too insurmountable for the central powers to handle. To level the playing field, necessity then dictated that the coalition would need to be broken apart, by defeating each nation before they could begin pooling their resources. When he assumed command, Falkenhayn maintained that Germany's best chances lay on the Western Front. There were two reasons for this. One, he believed Russia was not a serious threat. Her armies, although massive, were poorly led and were made up of untrained peasants, who were more likely to shoot themselves in the foot than threaten Germany. Even after the 1915 spring campaign, Falkenhayn maintained that if Russia somehow managed to bounce back, Austria-Hungary should be able to contain any threat without German assistance, especially now that Serbia was out of the picture. But the main reason for pursuing an offensive in the West was to eliminate the French. And by the French, I mean the British. You see, Falkenhayn respected France. He loved French cuisine and spoke the language fluently, as most patrician members did. However, he had come to see Great Britain as Germany's main rival. Why was this, you ask? Well, he had long harbored a deep resentment for the English. He saw them as a bunch of hypocrites who would only go to war as long as someone else did the fighting for them. He drew a comparison to Napoleon's final defeat at Waterloo. Wellington takes all the credit, yet the Russian, Austrian, and Prussian generals, who had been actively fighting Napoleon for years, rarely enjoy the same level of celebrity. To Falkenheim, Great Britain had built its resume by swooping in and stealing all the glory. It was as simple as that. He applied the same logic to the situation in 1916. The only reason Britain remained in the war was because France could do the fighting for them, and as long as there were French soldiers being killed, Britain would not have to lift a finger. You've probably heard the old joke, what's Britain's greatest military weapon? The French army. Although callous, that joke was taken to serious lengths, because what would happen if there were no more French soldiers? What if France, beaten and bloodied as Russia had been, was forced to withdraw? It was an enticing question. Of course, Germany could not strike Britain on land the same way it could France or Russia. This was one of the reasons Falkenhayn supported the U-boat campaign. It was a source of comfort to remind the English that they were not safe on their island hideout. With the high seas fleet unable to leave port, and U-boat operations suspended by September 1915, Falkenheim believed the time had come for the armies of Germany to strike a blow against the British, and the best way to do that was to eliminate her French ally. By knocking Britain's best sword from her hand, it would convince London that the cause was lost. In other words, knock out France, and you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. It was clear that however this was going to play out, things would need to move quickly. As we saw last day, intelligence reports estimated France was at her peak military strength by January 1916, with some 3 million men and an additional 500,000 in reserve. But equilibrium was almost achieved. While the French appeared on the decline, the British were growing. The same estimates placed Britain's army at 950,000, half of which were Kitchener's new army currently making their way across the Channel. But the numbers, although comforting, were given further credence by reports from the front. The French failures to break the deadlock had taken its toll. The high number of POWs gave this justification and the poor showings in Champagne and Artois indicated that its officer corps was rotten. While Great Britain continued to marshal, its army was inexperienced. 
and Falconine wagered that any aggressive moves from their part would be met with disaster. So Falconine based his strategy on three main assumptions. One, France was weak. Two, Britain was fickle. And three, Russia was done for good. And as we'll see, he was wrong about all three. Although this was how Falkenhayn saw the strategic picture, he was also facing trouble at the home front, which added to the sense of urgency. The suspension of the U-boat campaign meant that Germany was now at the mercy of the Allied blockade. Falkenhayn needed to win the war before it could put a stranglehold on Germany's resources, but there were already signs of strain. In July 1915, the price of bread shot up 65%, and the first food riots had broken out in the countryside, eventually reaching Berlin by December. Terrified by the prospect of a mob of housewives storming their gates, Berlin's bread supply office was forced to fix a lower price cap. Although this temporarily sedated any trouble in the urban centers, it added strain on the producers in the countryside, who now faced having to produce more bread, but with little prospect of compensation. To supplement the shortfall in agricultural production, Germany was becoming more reliant on neutral trade, with Denmark and Holland supplying most of the dairy and produce, and Sweden providing the bulk of Germany's iron ore. It was only inevitable that as Germany's internal markets declined, further demand on imports from our Baltic trading partners would eventually outstrip supply. Similar things were happening in Austria-Hungary as well. The first lineups for milk and potatoes appeared in early 1915, and rations for milk, coffee, and sugar were soon brought into effect. Meatless days, twice a week, were introduced by November. The dual monarchy had a further problem, a massive influx of refugees. The fighting in Glacier the previous spring saw an estimated 200,000 Polish, Romanian, Czech, and Slovakian refugees make their way into the Austrian capital. They were exhausted, malnourished, and had lost homes and livelihoods. It was clear the Habsburg administrators had no provisions to handle this changing demographic. Many spent the winter on the streets, where tales of their harrowing experiences soon made the rounds. The appearance of so many haggard and downtrodden countrymen convinced many to question the state of the war thus far. It was becoming clear that in a struggle of nations and empires, Austria-Hungary was running out of cards. Compounding this were political issues as well. You'll recall back in our episode on the home fronts, one of the things we talked about was how political partisanship was set aside in August 1914. Whether on the left or right side of the spectrum, political allegiances were temporarily on hold until the coming crisis was settled. But as the war neared its second year, this pledge of unity was beginning to crack. It became clear that the war had ballooned out of proportion, and had gone on long enough. From September 5th to the 8th, 1915, socialist leaders from 10 countries, including all the belligerents minus Britain, agreed to denounce the war and form the International Socialist Committee. From their meetings, held near the Swiss capital of Bern, they produced a document known as the Zimmerwald Manifesto, which essentially outlined that the war had been the creation of capitalists and imperial greed. The document called for the end of hostilities without, and this is key, without territorial annexations or indemnities, and the right of self-determination of nations. Hmm, sounds a bit like Wilson, doesn't it? Indeed, this was some pretty radical stuff for the time. The idea of simply ending the war, that is exchanging the prize of victory for peace, would continue to gain traction over the next two years. There was no denying it, attitudes towards the war were changing. So it goes without saying that time was of the essence, and Falkenhayn went to work right away. Now I should point out that Falkenheim's attrition was quite different than that of the Entente. While the Entente was offensive, committing the strength of their war machines to prolonged battles, Germany's attrition was defensive. The difference being that Germany would not attempt to pierce the Allied line. Instead, they would attack a sensitive area of the front, and force the French to commit themselves to the ejection of the German invasion. 
From carefully chosen positions, German gunfire would follow French troops in especially designated killing zones, where counter-offenses would be defeated time and time again. Continued efforts to eject the Germans would eventually break the French fighting spirit. High casualties would spark mutinies in the ranks, the home front would howl for peace, and Paris would be forced to concede. It was a brutal and callous method of war-making, but one which Falkenhayn calculated was the only option. Now you've probably noticed that this sounds completely different than what was used against the Russians. But don't forget, the conditions on the Eastern Front were much different than those on the West. Mobile warfare was much easier to achieve due to A. the absence of trenches, B. the geographic expanse, and C. the untrained Russian masses, a far less formidable opponent than the stout French infantrymen. Plus, Falkenhayn had taken a few notes on the Allied failures the previous year. He was convinced that the failures in Champagne and Artois were proof that numerical superiority meant absolute squat on the Western Front. France had lost over one million men thus far, yet all their efforts had come to naught. This was a sign that offensive operations were a total waste of manpower. The German defenders, outnumbered in more cases than not, had done more damage than the attacking armies, exchanging casualties at a 3-1 or 5-2 pace. These numbers had supplied Falkenhayn with two important justifications for his western strategy. One, the German soldier was of higher quality than his opponents, and two, a defensive war posture would ultimately save German lives. In order to preserve manpower, there was another important addition. Artillery was going to be the weapon of choice. The big guns had proven themselves in Galatia and Serbia, so Falkenhayn was fully committed that they would again prove their worth in the west. However, in order to get the French to attack, the battlefield would need to be an area where they would have no choice but to commit to a counterattack. But where, along the 700km front, was the sweet spot? A few ideas were kicked around, but as we know, it was settled on the area near the city of Verdun. Now, contrary to popular belief, Falkenhayn did not choose Verdun because of its symbolic history. That was actually secondary, but we'll talk more about that next day. Verdun was chosen because of what it offered to the German attackers. For one, Verdun served an important railway hub, which was necessary if the buildup of troops and artillery pieces were to be completed on time. More importantly, Verdun was a salient, with the river Meuse running north-south, dividing it in half. Protecting Verdun itself were a ring of forts which were flanked by strategic heights on both the west and east bank of the river. If the German assaults managed to capture those heights, it would give them a commanding view of the battlefield, and their artillery could blast the French lines from all three sides. With Verdun under siege, the French would only have two options. Defend it with all available manpower, or abandon it totally. But the latter was not really an option, because abandoning Verdun would give the German army a clear path onto Paris. So by using Sherlock Holmes's process of reduction, it was concluded that the French would have no choice but to fight, turning Verdun into a struggle of national survival. To plan the coming Verdun operation, Falkenhayn turned it over to the German 5th Army commanded by Crown Prince Wilhelm, the eldest son of the Kaiser and thus heir of the German Empire. Now here is where it gets a little bit tricky. We don't really have a clear idea of what the Germans were up to in their planning. What we do know is that there was a communication failure between the Crown Prince and Falkenhayn. The 5th Army commander was a military man, who needed concrete objectives in order to formulate any sort of plan. But Falkenhayn's strategy was obtuse in its very nature. As we saw, Verdun was not to be an assault in the traditional sense. So the Crown Prince had to come up with a plan which balanced both the offensive aspect, the seizing of the Meuse Heights, and the defensive aspect, the holding of said heights against furious French counterattacks. Yet Falkenhayn failed to supply him with any concrete details. For example, we know that Falkenhayn never intended on taking Verdun. His goal was to launch in what amounted to 
a large-scale attack with limited objectives, in order to convince the French that the threat was serious. However, this is a very tricky thing to plan for, since it requires your opponents to do exactly as you expect. It's clear that the Crown Prince had one hell of a time trying to come up with a solid plan, leading many historians and critics to label Verdun as a complete disjuncture between strategy, battle design, and tactics. From December the 26th to the opening bombardment on February 21st, plans were submitted, denied, modified, and adopted, only to be thrown in the trash by dinner. It was tough coming up with something which depended so much on the enemy doing exactly as desired. Making matters worse was Falconite's insistence that operational planning be surrounded in a shroud of secrecy. Maybe this was because he knew the vultures were already circling, so he felt it necessary to safeguard himself, but that did not help things at the operational level. For example, there was a bit of a Donnybrook in Berlin over the plans for the opening assault. Crown Prince Wilhelm wanted simultaneous attacks on both the west and east banks of the Meuse, to ensure Verdun and its surrounding forts were neutralized. However, Falkenhayn rejected this, arguing Germany did not have the necessary manpower to undertake such an ambitious offensive. Strategically, Falkenhayn wanted the appearance of a mass offensive, yet always felt Crown Prince Wilhelm's plans were too much. The Crown Prince later wrote about these experiences, saying, quote, what disturbed me was the frequently expressed idea that the point of the offensive was to bring the bleeding white of France's army, regardless of whether or not the fortress fell in the process. End quote. This level of confusion at the top trickled down to the rank and file as well. The movement of manpower and arms were done only at night, and no orders were put to paper. Falkenhayn was paranoid about leaks, and so all discussions were conducted orally. Even the Chancellor was kept in the dark until the very eve of the operation. All this secrecy really made a mess of things, and why to this day, historians have had a difficult time trying to piece it all together. But from this, we can draw a few solid conclusions. In his study of Falkenhayn's attrition, Robert Foley points out that Falkenhayn saw Verdun playing out over three distinct phases. The first phase was the exhaustion of the Anglo-French army. This here was the linchpin of the whole operation. The German 5th Army advance on Verdun would act as a vortex sucking in French reserves, and thus weakening the French presence elsewhere on the front. With French forces under thumb, the British would be compelled to counterattack ahead of schedule. This was the second phase. Falkenhayn did not know where this counterattack would occur, but assumed, wrongly, that the untried British would be swept aside. Once these two phases were completed, the battle would then enter its third phase, which was to mop up the remaining enemy reserves. Once the Allied counteroffensives were stumped, Germany would then fall on the weakened line and begin their triumphant march to Paris. So basically, it was check, contain, and conquer. However, these three phases, although seemingly straightforward, were a chimera for the crown prince. For one, the three phases hint that Verdun was a secondary operation. It was to be a pivot point which dictated events elsewhere. Inevitably, an operation of this magnitude will require collaborative planning between all the German armies in France. But as we know, this did not happen. Falkenheim protected the operational planning with a fierce jealousy, and was known to have deliberately duped his army commanders from his true intentions. Secondly, these three phases were time-sensitive. What if France proved more resilient? Falkenheim certainly expected strong resistance, but at what cost to German manpower? The longer France held out, the less advantageous Germany's position would be. Also, what if the British counterattack was more powerful than anticipated? How many divisions would Falkenheim spare, or be willing to spare, to ensure the exhaustion of Britain's army? These are important questions. Important questions which remained unanswered as the artillery roared to life on February the 21st. We'll get more into this next week once I get a map posted, 
but the final attack plan, approved on January the 6th, saw the 5th Army advance from the north along four sectors, codenamed Ada D, and storming the heights on the east bank of the Meuse, parallel to a line of forts whose names I won't bother you with right now. Advancing on these heights, troops would be supported by an array of artillery never before seen in the war thus far. In total, some 1,400 pieces were assembled. This was some sinister hardware, from 10.5cm light field guns to the 42cm Big Bertha, capable of firing an 1,800-pound shell, were brought in. In addition, some 202 personal mortars and a massive 380mm railway gun were assembled behind the German line. But the most terrifying aspect wasn't the volume of guns. It was the weight of the barrage they would unleash. Each gun and mortar, regardless of caliber, were given a three-day stockpile, and the artillery were expected to fire one million shells in a nine-hour opening bombardment. Approximately 100,000 shells per hour, or 1,666 falling every minute over just a 16-kilometer sector of the front. To feed their ferocious appetite, 34 munitions trains were to arrive daily, and workshops were set up to hastily repair firing mechanisms and warp barrels. The artillery was to give the French no respite, blasting them from their dugouts under the rancorous fury. The Germans coined this Trommelfuhr, or drumfire. Verdun was to be the first great artillery battle of the war, setting off a trend which would last until the armistice. The Battle of Verdun would be Falkenhayn's, and thus Germany's, great gamble, for the simple reason that it was dependent on the enemy doing exactly as anticipated. Unfortunately, the plan worked a bit too well. The French would comply pouring reserves into the sector exactly as Falkenheim's plan envisioned, except they would not break. After the initial shock of the opening bombardment, resistance would stiffen, slowing the German advance. Thunderous artillery exchanges were turned Verdun into a wasteland. Blasted trees, shell-swept fields, monstrous craters and rotting corpses made up the apocalyptic scenery which forever changed the mood and direction of the war. It was a place where machines, not flesh, ruled the battlefield. And next week, we're heading straight into that battle. But before we go, I want to say that Verdun will act as a linchpin for the remainder of our discussion of 1916. Because it lasted the entire year, from February 21st to December 16th, we won't be looking at the battle in one sitting. Instead, we'll jump in and out of it as events unfolded elsewhere. The Anglo-French attack on the Somme and Russian offensive in Glacia were both undertaken to relieve pressure on the Verdun sector. So although we'll be moving around quite a bit to stay on top of things, just keep in mind that Verdun was always going on in the background, and had a big influence on how the rest of 1916 played out. Okay, that's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. If you have questions, comments, and suggestions, be sure to shoot off an email or contact me via Twitter, which is at greatwarpodcast. If you wish to help out the show, we now have a donate button up and running on the site, so if you feel so inclined, be sure to stop by and leave whatever amount you feel is right. Every little bit helps and it goes a long way to keeping the show running. Or, write us a review on iTunes, which will help boost us in the rankings and attract any new potential listeners out there. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.